have a promise, such an awesome promise that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we continue now to worship you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your spirit will take your word now and work it into our life so that we can truly know you, love you, be loved by you in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I invite you to join with me this morning in opening your Bible to Mark chapter 8 uh, as we continue our journey through, through the book of Mark. As you probably know, today launches the week prior to the greatest day in history. In the church world, we call this Palm Sunday. And special events like this always have a backstory. And in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're looking at the backstory of the event that leads up to the most historic day and the greatest day in history. Um, the Easter season is definitely bittersweet. Uh, we can't have the celebration of Easter uh, without having the tragedy and the torture that Jesus willingly endured for you and me to pay the price for the penalty of our sin. In the first seven chapters of Mark, as we have marked through this little book over the last few months, we've seen that Jesus came to usher in. He came to bring in the kingdom of God, and Jesus came to preach gospel truth. In Mark chapter 1, he tells us that's why he came into this world. And we found that Jesus has been crisscrossing back and forth at this particular time in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. His activity had become so popular that everywhere he went, crowds of people, thousands of people, would always gather around where he was teaching and where he was doing his ministry. As I said, every major event in the life of Jesus, and this is true about you and me as well, every major event in our life has a backstory. Uh, your, your current reputation and your current influence and your part in the circle that you draw around your world has a backstory that has led you to the opportunities that you enjoy and that you live in your life today. Jesus was not out to win a popularity contest, and yet crowds of people always gathered around everywhere he went. But he had a specific mission, and again, that mission was to usher in the kingdom of God and to, to preach gospel truth. So everywhere Jesus went, people asked, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And as we come to Palm Sunday 2021, that's our question for today. Who is Jesus? And so I invite you to take your Bible and follow along with me. And let's read together Mark chapter 8. And we want to read the first 30 verses. So follow the plot line as we move through this part of Jesus' life this morning together. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district about Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this and said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Father, thank you that we are blessed today to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And I pray that you will open our mind and our hearts and our lives to be able to clearly see and understand who you are today. In Jesus' name now, amen. So three things about this question. Who is Jesus? Three things we see in this passage. First of all, Jesus is the master teacher. Jesus is the master teacher. In verse 1 of chapter 8, in those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered. Hold there just for a moment. Uh, as I said before, everywhere Jesus went, people wanted to learn and people wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus in order to take in everything that he had to teach. For three days, Jesus had been teaching this crowd. He had been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He had been teaching them about gospel truth. His prayer was that they would understand 
who he was. So the time came for them to leave after three days. And Jesus, again, had compassion on them. Now, we've seen this a number of times already in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was not willing to send these people who had come from all the regions around the Sea of Galilee, from Tyre and Sidon, over on the Mediterranean side, northwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee. People had come from all the way down to the Dead Sea on the southeast side of, of Israel. They had come from all regions in order to see Jesus and try to understand who he was. And, and Jesus was compassionate. He was not willing to, to send them away hungry. He had met their primary need, which was their spiritual need. But he also, as a master teacher, knew that when the primary need was met, the physical need also had to be met. And sometimes he had to meet the physical need before he met the spiritual need in order for them to go back and enjoy and process what they had been taught. They needed to have physical help. And so Jesus provided another miracle. He was the master teacher. So he took seven loaves that were available and he turned those seven loaves into enough food to feed 4,000 people. He had already done this once before. He had already taken five loaves and turned it into enough to feed 5,000 people. Now he takes seven loaves and feeds 4,000 people. These two events sometimes are often confused as the same event, but they're two different events. Jesus had a reason for doing this miracle twice. Let that just stick in your head and process for a moment. Uh, there were some similarities to the two events, but there were also some great differences in these two events. For example, Jesus initiated this miracle. The feeding of the 5,000 was initiated by the disciples. The crowd was smaller. That's obvious. There's 4,000 people, which is 1,000 less than the 5,000 men who were in the, the first miracle. There were two more pieces of bread in the feeding of the 4,000. The fish were different. The fish in this particular uh, incident could be described as like sardines. <laughs> they were small fish. And Jesus took a few small sardines and turned it into enough fish to feed 4,000 people. In this passage, Jesus said the blessing twice. So let that sink in. The idea of twice is becoming prevalent in this passage. But the main point was the same. Jesus was the master teacher for those who were willing to learn from him. Jesus is the master teacher. The question is, are you willing to open up your mind and learn from him? He was a compassionate teacher. He was a successful teacher. He was filled with compassion for physical needs as well as spiritual needs. They went hand in glove with Jesus. But Jesus knew that his primary task on earth was not necessarily to be a teacher. His primary task on earth was not necessarily to be a miracle worker. His primary mission was greater than either one of those tasks that he performed. It's important to notice, though, that as the, as the master teacher, the actions of Jesus were always consistent with his teaching. I think for adults and for parents and for students who have peers in our world today, if we're going to talk about Jesus, if we're going to teach other people what it means to know Jesus and follow Him, our actions have to be consistent with our words, with what we say. And certainly, Jesus was the perfect model of the master teacher. The thing that set Jesus apart as a teacher, though, was three things. Number one, He taught in the presence of God. Number two, he, under, he, he taught under the authority of God. And number three, 
he understood what it was like to give honor and glory to God in his teaching. Isn't that a great model to follow? A great model for you and me to follow. We, we live our lives and teach others what it means to know Jesus and follow Jesus in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the honor and glory of God. Wouldn't it be great if every believer lived life like that? Don't you think that would make a difference in how Jesus is perceived and how Jesus is understood to this generation in our world today? In verse 10, after performing this miracle, after feeding the crowd and sending them away with plenty of energy, Jesus immediately moved on to his next ministry location. We pick that up in verse 10. Because arriving in Dalmanutha, Jesus is going to face another storm of a different kind. Religious leaders who had been following Jesus all of his public ministry life began again to argue with him. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came, began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Who were the Pharisees? Well, they were religious leaders. They knew the law. They knew what it was like to see a picture of the commandments of God and diligently strive to fulfill every letter of not only God's law, but laws that they had written in regards to God's law as well. But there was a big challenge with the Pharisees. They did not believe who Jesus was. Big problem. Big problem. They did not believe who Jesus was. Jesus was the perfect teacher, and he knew what questions to answer and what questions not to answer. And so these Pharisees asked him for a sign, and Jesus said, No way. I've not given you a sign. Because Jesus knew that these Pharisees, the same people who would follow him to Jerusalem, greet him on Palm Sunday with the crowd and follow him through the last week of his life were the same men who would ultimately lead to prosecute him and torture him terribly. The Pharisees did not believe who Jesus was. I pray that's not you today. I pray that you have not put yourself in a position of these Pharisees to not believe who Jesus is. Why, why is belief such an important thing? Now, I want us to understand that doubt and disbelief are two different things. Everybody at times is going to doubt. Everybody's going to doubt maybe why Jesus does what he does and Maybe even who he is. You think back into the Old Testament, the writer of the Psalms, David and the other psalmist. You know, we spent two years working through the first two books of the Psalms. We're going to look at the third book later this year. And then the next two years move into book four and five. We're going to see that many of the Psalms are, are expressing doubt in the mind of those who believe in God. But that doesn't mean that they're not secure in God. John the Baptist. Jesus said, John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever walked on planet Earth. And when John was in prison just prior to his death, prior to his last days on Earth, John sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? He doubted whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or not. You know about Thomas. We're going to read about him this week as we read the Passion Week in the Gospels. Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. 
I believe every Christian has times of doubt in our life, but doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Every believer doubts at some point. But don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees. Don't fall into the trap of not putting your faith and trust in who Jesus really is. God can use you in a mighty way when you put your faith and trust in Him, when you truly believe in Him. So in verse 13, Jesus immediately left these unbelieving religious people. Verse 13 says, He left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus is crisscrossing back and forth, up and down around the Sea of Galilee. So secondly, who is Jesus? Jesus is the misunderstood Christ. Not only is He the master teacher, but He's the misunderstood Christ. In verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, talking about these disciples, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Often as a kid, I, I've shared many times in this church that I have four brothers. And often my dad would tell me or one of my brothers the same thing over and over multiple times. And he had a favorite expression that he used. I can hear it ringing in my ears right now. The favorite expression of my dad, you knuckleheads. <laughs> Don't you get what I'm trying to teach you? Don't you get what I'm trying to say to you? You knuckleheads. Now here these disciples are. They've just seen Jesus take seven loaves of bread and a few small sardines, turn it into enough food to feed 4,000 people. And here they are in the boat discussing they have a shortage of bread. So Jesus saw this discussion taking place, and Jesus did what He always did best. He turned to teach them a lesson that was bigger than physical bread. Let's look at it. In verse 15, He cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So what is leaven? Well, you probably know it today as, as yeast. It's an ingredient that makes dough puff up, makes dough expand. And so Jesus was listening to them, listening to his disciples talk about not having any bread. And he turns the conversation, he says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. How much yeast, how much leaven does it take to make bread puff up? Well, it only takes a smidgen, very small amount. A smidgen of yeast, a smidgen of leaven makes bread just really expand and puff up. So Jesus was looking at his disciples when they were talking about bread, and he said, Beware the Pharisees, because look at them, they're puffed up. They think they know everything. They think they have all the answers. Watch out. It only takes a little bit of pride. It only takes a little bit of self-confidence, of arrogance, to make someone puff up. And when someone is puffed up, and they're bigger than God. They become bigger than God. So these Pharisees were puffed up with arrogance and pride to the degree that they could not even see who Jesus was. They totally misunderstood Jesus. And their misunderstanding led to their unbelief. And remember, unbelief is the opposite of faith. The two can't mix. You can't have unbelief and faith in the same package, in the same life. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He said, not only beware the leaven of the Pharisees, but He said, beware the leaven of Herod. Now remember who Herod was? Herod was the man who just a few short weeks earlier had put John the Baptist to death. 
He had beheaded John the Baptist. Why did Herod make such a foolish mistake? He made such a foolish mistake because he elevated himself above God as well. He had a hard heart. The leaven of Herod is a hard heart. The leaven of the Pharisees is pride and arrogance. The leaven of Herod is a hard heart, and his hard heart led him in his pride and arrogance to reject who Jesus really was and put the greatest man short of Jesus who ever walked on the face of the earth to death. So how much of this world's arrogance and pride and hard-heartedness does it take to create a gap so big between a person and God that they're totally or separated from God? Just a little smidgen. Just a little bit. The leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees doesn't have to be grossly large and huge and big. It's just a little bit of believing what the world teaches. Just a little bit of, of believing that I'm just as good as God or I don't need God or I'm comfortable without God. Elevating yourself above God. Just a little bit of that kind of philosophy cuts a person off from God. So don't fall into the same trap that Herod fell into and that the Pharisees fell into. Don't let your heart become too prideful and too self-sufficient to allow faith in Jesus to totally rule all of your life. This may be the greatest challenge to our North American culture today. Most people are too comfortable to really need Jesus. Most people in our culture are too self-sufficient to really need Jesus in our life. And it's so easy to fall into the trap whether you're in poverty or whether you're in luxury to be dependent on other people and other things rather than being totally dependent upon belief in Jesus. So let me ask you, what are you, what are you dependent on today to hold you up? rather than depending on Jesus to meet your greatest need? Is it a relationship with a spouse or significant other? Is it your job? Is it your health? Is it some degree of success in recreation? What are you depending on to hold you up? Don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees and Herod. And allow anything to be holding you up other than Jesus Christ Himself. Again, hearts may be harder in our culture today than any other time in history. When we can sit and hear the gospel, we can sit in our living room, sit in our homes and read the gospel, and it go right over our heads to letting Jesus be totally in charge of all of our life. We've fallen into the same trap as Herod and the Pharisees. So verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Again, this is where the disciples really became knuckleheads. <laughs> After Jesus said that, I mean, they still didn't get what He was saying. When Jesus was saying, I'm not talking about physical bread, I'm talking about your spiritual life. I'm talking about things that make a difference in eternity. And they come right back and say, what about the fact that we have no bread? Jesus had just healed a deaf mute the day before and miraculously fed 4,000 people. How could these best friends of Jesus not understand who He was? Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? You see what Jesus was saying in those few questions? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? The leaven of the Pharisees. 
Don't you believe who I am? Do you not perceive or understand? See, it's pride and arrogance that goes before destruction. And when we elevate ourselves to the point where we don't need Jesus, we've fallen into that trap. Jesus said, are your hearts hardened? You see where he's going with that? The leaven of Herod. He's trying to draw the, draw the picture. Just like I'm trying to draw the picture for us today. We need to wake up to the reality of who Jesus really is. So that we can believe in him with all of our heart, with all of our lives. Herod was dependent on himself and his image more than believing the truth about Jesus. His power and his position and his possessions put him above needing Jesus. Jesus said, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. Just the day before they had seen Jesus take his fingers and put in a deaf man's ears and take his saliva and put on a man who could not speak his tongue. Jesus poured himself into that man and sighed a relief, sighed a, sighed a, a sign of agony saying, I'm taking your disease upon myself so that you can be healed. And that's the same thing Jesus wants to do for you and me today. So as the master teacher, he continues to reinforce these pictures in the minds of people who still misunderstand who he is. But he goes deeper. Verse 18, do you not remember? Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, those are great questions for you and me today. How much of God's air do we need to breathe in? before we realize where our source of life comes from? How many heartbeats do we have to have before we realize that we do not control anything? Every part of our life is in God's hands. Do you not yet understand? Jesus came to this world that He created and he lived a perfect life. We're going to see as we move through this week that he entered Jerusalem and faced the Pharisees and the government to willingly, willingly face a mock trial. Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. Jesus arose from the grave on the third day to give us victory over any fear that we have, including death. Do you not yet understand? But He was, and He is today, the misunderstood Christ. That's bad news. But there's great news. Look at Point number three, who is Jesus? Jesus is Messiah. He's Messiah. The, the ministry to the disciples of Jesus continued as they paddled the boat across the Sea of Galilee to the northeast side. They've gone now from the western side of the Sea of Galilee down the coast. They've come now back to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. <clears throat> and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. So... At this point, Jesus is trying to reinforce a very important point. 
His disciples had been with him now for a year or so, several months, a year. And they still hadn't really come to understand who he was. They still didn't see who he was. How long have you been hanging around in this life, in and out maybe of having touches with reading the Bible or religious conversation, to where you may partially see who Jesus is. Just keep that picture in mind because this event seems to be a puzzling event. It's the only time in the Bible that we have an instance where Jesus does something and it's only partially completed. He partially gives this man his sight. But then after spitting on the eyes of the blind man and laying his hands on him, and the man being partially restored with sight. And remember, the disciples are watching this. Then Jesus again touched the man's eyes. Look in verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, the miracles that Jesus had performed up to this point, remember he had fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He had fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few small sardines. He repeated that miracle twice. Jesus was continuing to repeat healing people. He was continuing to repeat casting out demons. He was continuing to repeat dealing with nature and storms on the Sea of Galilee. Why do you think Mark is pointing this out in a repeated manner this way? Well, these disciples of Jesus heard what this man saw the first time. And then they heard what he saw the second time. These miracles and this instant in the life of this poor deaf man was pointing out to the disciples that even though the disciples up to this point had not clearly seen who Jesus was a week uh, a week after palm sunday on easter sunday the resurrection they would clearly see who Jesus was Jesus was giving them kind of a, a a warm-up to what it was going to be like when he actually went to the grave and was buried after being crucified and after he arose from the grave. So in verse 26, after this man had been fully, fully restored, he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So the disciples now continued their journey with Jesus. And... On the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Hermon towers above the northeastern side. We've talked about this before. And so Jesus begins with his disciples on the way up the northeastern side toward the, toward the border of Syria. And some of us have been there. Some of us have seen this outside of Caesarea Philippi. The, the mountainside is just covered with thousands of, of idols that have been placed into the hillside of the mountain, Mount Hermon. And so, in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, get the picture, they're looking up and they're seeing thousands of idols, handmade, carved idols, made out of stone, made out of wood, stuffed into the side of the, of the mountain. They're looking up, you know, these are supposed to be the gods, and Jesus looks up and he says, on the way, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now remember, back in Mark chapter 6, people were identifying Jesus with Elijah and the prophets and John the Baptist. Herod, remember, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 16, 
said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. But Herod never put his belief in Jesus. He doomed his eternal fate by totally missing who Jesus was. But finally, Simon Peter was beginning to see clearly. He said, you are Messiah. You are Christ. You are the Son of the living God. He acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah. All of his life, Peter had learned and studied and heard about Messiah. He had been taught about Messiah. His image that he had been taught about Messiah was totally different from Jesus, who he really was. I don't know what you've been taught about Jesus in your lifetime, but it could be that maybe there's a misunderstanding about who you've been taught Jesus is. But today, I pray that you are like Peter. I pray that at least at this point in his life, and at this point in your life, you will see Jesus as Messiah. As the one that you need to set you free from the penalty of your sin. Recently, in our church, two adults profess faith in Jesus Christ by, by being baptized. Baptism is a picture of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture of the old person admitting that they're sinner and they're separated from God. And going down under the water, they're saying, I'm dying to my old self. Coming up out of the water, they're saying, I'm a new person in Jesus Christ. It's a picture image. Baptism as that symbol is that you put your faith and trust in believing who Jesus really is. And today, today I trust that some of you will make that same decision. I pray that you will come to understand Jesus as Messiah. So let me ask you, have you believed? Have you put your faith and your life truly into making all of life about Jesus. Simon Peter was going to have some ups and downs and some doubts after this day, but at least for this moment, he confessed Jesus as Messiah. So how can we take these stories that we've read about today and learned about today and put them into application in our life? Well, the question is, who is Jesus. And my prayer is that you'll understand that Jesus is Messiah. He is the Christ. He is who He said He is. He is, if you will make Him so in your life, Lord. He is Lord. The question is whether you have made Him Lord in your life or not. Here's the sad fact. Most of the crowds that gathered around Jesus Missed him. Herod missed him. Most of the Pharisees missed him. And my prayer is that you will not miss Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's Messiah. And he will be Lord over anyone who will bow their knee to him and confess that He is Lord. So as we prepare for communion this morning, I want to challenge you to trust Jesus to soften your heart. I want to challenge you to lay your sin at the feet of Jesus. And let Him wash your sins away with His precious blood. On the back of your outline, I've put, the bottom of your outline, I've put some scriptures that are key to understanding what really communion is all about. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, none is righteous. No, not one. Have you come to the point where you admit that, that you are not righteous? That means that you're not good enough. You have nothing that would 
allow you to deserve a relationship with God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. We don't deserve anything except eternal separation from God in hell. But look at Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. That's why we deserve separation from God, because of our sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we trust Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, even though we may have our doubts along the way, when we believe in Him, believe He is who He is, that He's the perfect Son of God, the perfect Savior, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Then the Bible says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Good news. Good news. And good news is for receiving and good news is for sharing. So for all who have believed today, I want to invite you to come to His table now. In your seat when you came in this morning, there was a pack of communion elements. The top part is a broken piece of bread. I'd like to ask you to take that out right now and hold it in your hand. And on the bottom side, there's a cup, and I'd like for you to take the, the top back, peel it back, and just hold the cup and the bread in your hand for just a moment. Palm Sunday led to Maundy Thursday, where Jesus shared the Passover meal with His disciples for the last time. But He took that Passover meal and He instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, what we call Communion. Jesus initiated so that we might remember what He's done for us. And that's what communion is. It's a symbol. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The cup represents the blood of Jesus that He shed to pay the price for the penalty of your sin. And if you've received Him today, He invites you into communion with Him. God, I thank you today that you have brought us to your table. You've reminded us of some of the events that you went through in your life that led up to this last week in your life that literally was torture. And as we remember this week what you've done for us, I pray, God, that we will definitely remember you. That we will take seriously thanking you for the pain that you endured of the cross. The humility that you endured to be stripped of everything that was heavenly. And brought down to endure the shame of a Roman cross. And God, as we remember that this week, help us to do what you've asked us to do. And look forward to that day when you will come back again to receive us unto yourself. So for now, God, I pray that you will guide our hearts in communion with you. As we celebrate the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he took a piece of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. God bless you as you take. And Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity now to continue to celebrate. God, what you have done for us is an awesome thing. What you've done for us is a powerful thing. You've given us your total sacrifice so that we could exchange our sin for your perfection. God, I pray that if there's a person in this room who continues to struggle with acknowledging you as Lord, that right now, God, even right now, they would, they would pray and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake. Take my life, and may the, the, the rest of my life be used to give glory and honor to you. And because you've done that for us, God, we do join our hearts together, and we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship.